Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. If you are new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor, one of our elders here at the Austin Stone. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter. To 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen behind me throughout the sermon. This is actually going to be our last Sunday in the book of 1 Peter for some time. We're taking a break into the fall. Uh, next week we're going to have a sermon series, actually a specific sermon series at every one of our campuses, which I'm really excited about. And then in July we'll have our annual summer preaching series where we have men from all over the country, even over the world, come teach us the word of God throughout the month of July. But we've been in First Peter for some time now, and when you've been in the same letter for a while, it's really important to consistently remember where we've been so you can understand each new verse in light of the larger whole. And so remember, the theme throughout all of 1 Peter is hope in exile. Hope in exile, that if you're a Christian, you are not home yet. And so as you and I live in exile, what Peter has been doing, he's been telling us again and again and again that there is no people like the people of God. No people like the people of God. Now, we're not better than other people morally or as, as if we're superior to them. No, what he keeps saying is, no, no, People of God, no one knows the special love of God the way that you do. No one's more treasured than you. No created thing is more central to God's purposes and plans to restore his creation than his people. And over and over again, what Peter will do in 1 Peter is begin to tell you and call you various noble titles. He tells you, no, you're holy. You're elect. You're a living stone in the house of God. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. He's saying this is who you are and nothing, not even exile, can change that. And what you see is attached to every description in 1 Peter of who you are, attached to that description is a description of how you should live. And this is the basic gospel formula throughout the Bible. God does all the work to make you his, to give you an unshakable identity and relationship with him, and then he commands you to obey and respond in light of his love. And so far, Peter has addressed so many different areas of our lives and ways that we should obey God. And last week, we came into a section of 1 Peter where he begins to address, okay, Christians, this is who you are. Here's how you relate to institutions like government and work and marriage and the world in general. And what we're going to see is that with each of these topics, there are different commands and different promises and different warnings, but throughout every topic, there is one operative word that defines all of them. And in every area of life, especially when Peter in chapter 2 through chapter 3 is going to talk to us about different institutions and how we live in them, there's one word he uses throughout. And it's a word, it's it's a concept that you and I honestly do not value as highly as God does. And it's the word submission. It's the word submission, or to be subject to authority. We see that this is the general command of this section of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 2, 13, here's how he starts the section to kind of summarize all that he's about to say. He says, be subject, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he begins to describe the institutions he has in mind. And he could have said anything, be nice, Be kind, be respectful, but he says be subject to. He says be subject to those who have been given authority over you. And it's really important in this text for you to see why do we do that? 
Why do we submit? Why do we have that posture? Is it because those over us always have our best in mind? Is it because our personality type leads us to do that? No. What does the verse say? He says, be subject, why? For the Lord's sake. You see it really clearly. You're to be subject and submissive to authorities over you for no other reason than to display and honor how good and trustworthy our God is, even in the midst of unjust rulers. We showcase, I can trust him through submission and trusting him to take care of me. Now, when you and I hear the word submission, for a lot of us, everything in us begins to rebel, right? You hear the word submission, and for a lot of us, everything in us begins to rebel. Because submission in our context carries with, it has a lot of baggage. It carries with it ideas of inferiority and oppression and the belittling of other people. And this word and the concept it represents and the actions it commands, it wars against all of our highest current cultural values. I mean, our highest societal values right now are self-expression and self-actualization and authenticity, no matter who it offends and no matter who it requires you to rebel against to be true to you. I mean, all of our heroes who were lauded as heroes are the Mavericks, the Moanas, so to speak. You don't have kids, you've seen the movie pretty good, okay? But it's being true to you. And yet, what does God say in his word? He's saying, no, no. The highest joys are found by honoring others more than yourself. That's what he's saying. That the highest joys are found in honoring others more than yourself. That your greatest self is found through submission to God and his word and all that he calls you to submit to. That's what he's saying. And it's so important that you and I have a right understanding and a proper valuing of submission because you cannot understand the gospel of Jesus Christ without understanding submission. And you can't understand what it means to follow him if you don't value submission because you are submitting yourself to him. Now, if any part of you, right now, as I'm talking about submission, I've said it about 10 times now, and everything in you is struggling, and you're hearing me talk about this and you're thinking, man, this is really, really hard for me to even listen to, to sit under, I want you to know I completely understand. I completely understand. Of all the different truths that God has pressed into me and grown me in over the last eight years of my life, submission to other people was probably one of the biggest ones. The vast majority of you did not know me when I was 22, and that's a gift to you and to me, okay? That's a gift to both of us. Um, But the idea for me, when I was younger, the idea for me of submitting myself to other people prompted my gag reflex. That's what it did. Nothing about it appealed to me and everything about it rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, as soon as someone attempted to exert authority over me, I instantaneously wanted to show them how little power they had and how much I just don't care what you think. I mean, I I was in college and older guys that I knew, seniors, would encourage me to lead in different ways and would encourage me to serve in different ways in our university and in the student ministry that I was a part of. And it, them saying that, just everything in me just wanted to say, I want to do the opposite of everything you're saying. It just prompted that in me. But here's what's happened. What, began, what God began to work in me so many years ago and honestly now has made a fundamental conviction of my life is this. There is more joy in submitting to others for the Lord's sake than there is in actualizing every desire I have. 
there's more joy. There's more joy. And that sounds totally counter to everything I hear and honestly everything that is natural to me. Nothing about my personality type. Nothing about my wiring would lead me to that conclusion. I mean, just literally this last Thursday, I was reminded that how I just naturally don't want to submit to other people. We were at the neighborhood pool and, I'm, and it's the last day of school for my daughter Elle and we're hanging out and we're playing and there's uh, some of our uh, friends there and their kids and their sons who are like seven, eight. So I'm throwing them in the pool. The best thing about being adults is throwing kids around. I just throw them in the pool and we're hanging out and I throw one of the guys and I hear the boop, boop. Excuse me, sir, can you, can you stop? Lifeguard. And everything in me was like, throw him in. Like, I just want to usurp, rebel, destroy him. Like, I just, I'm like, he's 16 years old. I'm like, I'll show you. Don't, no one tells me what to do. And now, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But that was like my instantaneous response was to destroy this person, right? But all everyone else saw by the power of the Holy Spirit was, sure, man, gotcha. But that's what I felt. Now, why would I do that? Why would, it's just a silly small thing, but here's what I've learned. God has shown me a better way. And he's shown me that submission is superior in joy. It's superior, and here's why. Submission has superior joy because it leads you down paths Jesus has already tread. It leads you down paths Jesus has already walked. See, through submission, you begin to understand and know Jesus more clearly. And greater clarity and belief in Jesus leads you to greater love and joy and contentment and peace. And as you get to to know Jesus more and more, you discover by knowing him who you are. By knowing God, you go, oh, this is who I am, and now I know who I'm supposed to be. Because what you find is that God has hidden in Jesus an identity for you and a self for you that is greater and longer lasting and truer than any other version of yourself you imagined that you'd want to become. Submission leads to superior joy because it leads you to Jesus and he has more joy than you know what to do with. That's why it's superior. And so last week we saw how we're supposed to submit to and relate to government. And this week we're gonna see Peter apply very similar language to slaves in the Roman Empire and we're gonna see that that relates most closely to our modern day employer-employee dynamic. Here's the main point I want you to walk away with. Here's the main thing that if you walk away, when you think about your workplace, I want you to walk away knowing this, to be like Christ at your work. God cares about your work. To be like Christ at your workplace is to submit and do good even to those who don't deserve it, even when it costs. To submit and do good even to those who don't deserve it, even when it costs. Let's read 1 Peter 2, 18 through 21 together. Servants, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter specifically addresses this group of people who he calls servants. Other translations say slaves, depending on the translation. 
And he commands them to be submissive and respectful to their masters, even those who were unjust. And then he encouraged them by saying, when you do that, this is a gracious and beautiful thing in the sight of God. He says, why? Because you're following in the pathway and the steps of Jesus by choosing faithfulness to God over a pain-free life. That's what he's saying. Now, there is so much to cover here, but I want to briefly address the fact that Peter is telling slaves to submit to their masters. I want to address this because it's not just Peter. Paul says basically the same thing in the book of Ephesians and Colossians. Now, and I'm gonna, I think you're going to see really clearly from the text on your own in a second that the best equivalent today is the employer-employee dynamic, but it's really, really crucial you and I understand how the Bible addresses slavery. It's really important we understand this because addressing slavery would be important no matter what, just understand what Peter is saying. No matter our time, no matter our context, if we're gonna understand what Peter's saying, we understand what he means by slaves submit to your masters. But listen, it's especially important for us. It's especially important for us because we live in a country that was built on the back of the horrific slave trade and subjugation of an entire race of people for hundreds of years. And this atrocity, it continues to shape every one of us in all sorts of powerful ways. And then on top, if that wasn't enough, on top of that, this text, and texts like it were used to promote, propagate, and spiritualize the practice of slavery. So we have got to understand, Peter, what are you saying? God, what do you have for us in this text? So I'm not going to be able to cover this topic exhaustively. It would take a a lot of sermons to cover this exhaustively, but I want to make two things really clear. Okay, if you're thinking about this, taking notes, two things really clear. First, the slavery the apostles are speaking into is much different than the slavery you and I have in our minds. The slavery they're speaking into is much different than the slavery you and I have in mind. And second, the new world slavery that we are most familiar with in America, was condemned outright by the Bible. It was condemned outright by the Bible. And it's crucial for you to understand this for so many different reasons, how to love people well. But it's crucial because one of the massive reasons we need to understand what's going on here is because texts like this, you read it or you hear it spoken, and what happened is our own secret doubts And the explicit argument of other people use texts like this to undermine our trust in the word of God. When you read this text, it's easy for your own secret doubts to go, what is the Bible saying right here? I wonder if I can trust it. And other people use texts like this and surface level readings of texts like this to use it to say, you shouldn't trust the Bible because look at what it said. How do you know you won't be wrong in other areas? Because this text on slavery, at first glance, here's what it seems to do. You read it to surface level. It seems for us to either, to either at worst promote slavery or at best be apathetic towards the plight of those enslaved. At first glance, when you read, that's what it seems to do. But you and I know without a shadow of a doubt that the human trafficking and subjugation of Africans and New World slavery was damnable. We know that. 
We have to know that and own up to that and be, believe that. But if we know that, then the question is, is the Bible supporting that? Is the Bible in favor of that? But if God's word is clearly wrong about this, how can we trust it in other matters? Like if God's word is wrong about this, then how do you and I know that other claims in the Bible that we believe right now won't be proved false sometime in the future? That's often the argument for why the Bible can't be trusted. So I'm gonna be really brief, but if you want, there's tons of resources on this. You want more resources about this, find anyone, anyone in leadership at, at our church, any of our campuses after the service, and we'll give you more resources. But here's the first thing. Here's the first point. Greco-Roman slavery in the first century was much different than New World slavery in America. I want to read to you an excerpt from Dr. Murray J. Harris on his book called Slave of Christ. Where what he does, he summarizes for us, he distinguishes for us, here's what Peter and Paul are writing into, and here's how it contrasts with the New World slavery, uh, slavery you and I are thinking of. Okay, here's an excerpt, I'll read it slowly. It's pretty long and pretty dense, but it's important we understand it. Here's what he says. He says, or more specifically, what distinguished Greco-Roman slavery from New World slavery? So he's going to tell you, here's what's going on. In the first century, in the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. That's the first difference. Second, they, the slaves, were sometimes more educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Next, some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic and social advantage. Next, they could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the rights of public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. That's what defined first the slavery that Peter and Paul have in mind. That's what defined it. Now, let me say, obviously, freedom is better than slavery. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells slaves, hey, if you can get your freedom, you should. But he says, you've got to know that the people that the apostles are speaking to are more like a servant class of workers than they are a race-based, perpetual, chattel slavery that you and I should be ashamed of that happened in our country. This is why when you read this text, the reason translators use the word servant and not slave, the reason for that is not because they're scared of the topic or want to sweep it under the rug. What they're trying to do is distinguish for you and for modern day readers and saying, this is not, when you read slaves, they're not talking about the same thing. They're trying to distinguish for us modern day readers that this first century slavery is very different than 16th century America. So that's the first thing I want you to know. Second thing is this. I want you to know that the Bible, both Old and New Testament, explicitly denounce new world slavery in the strongest of terms. See, the enslavement of Africans started with human trafficking and kidnapping. And I want to read to you a verse from Exodus to show you that starting even in Exodus, 
a people who had been enslaved, by the way, who God set free. This is one of the commands God gave to them after they were set free. He shows us how God denounces the massacre of the slave trade. Exodus 21, 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. In the strongest of terms. And then what you see is in Deuteronomy 24, it's restated. And then in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 1.10, you can look there later on your own, in a list of sins, Paul lists explicitly enslavers or man-stealers as those who are godless, lawless, and disobedient. I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt, the Bible never for a moment supported new world slavery or slavery that was known in the southern United States because from the moment it began with the human trafficking of Africans across the ocean, God denounced it and said that is sin in the highest order from the very beginning. So there was never a moment of that that was supported by God and his word. Now listen, there is so much more that could be said. And honestly, there's so much more ways that people have to meditate on. This is our history, and we have to deal with it. But one of the worst things about this is how often text can be improperly taught to support and encourage abuses. And there may not be a more grievous one in the history of our country than the way texts like this were used to prop up slavery and encourage apathy towards its abolishment. That's one of the worst. See, it's important you and I, to zoom out, it's important you and I are very thoughtful and learn what does the Bible say and what does it not say? Because listen, there will always be things the Bible says you struggle with. There will always be things that you read and you go, oh man, I'm a hard time understanding or believing what the Bible just said. But what I want, I can't, for myself or for you, I don't want to replace those times of struggle. But what I want to do and what we want to do as a people is constantly go, I want you to struggle with the actual claims of the Bible and not certain claims purported by misguided, false, and heretical teachers. That's what we want to do because I want you to be able to trust that this is indeed the word of God to us. It's God's word and you can trust it. And you don't have to worry about it being amended later on because God has spoken once and for all and it's true. And it's especially important for us as we consider the command we're looking at today. I mean, this command is telling you to submit and do good to those who don't deserve it even when it costs you. That is hard enough to do when you believe the Bible. It's made impossible if you secretly doubt the Bible's validity. So it's important that we understand what the Bible says and doesn't say. So let me read to you the text again. Now with new eyes and fresh sight on what does he mean by servant submit to your master. He's not talking about the same thing we're thinking about. So 1 Peter 2, 18 through 19, let's read it again. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So the titles of servant and master relate most closely in our dynamic, in our context, to employees and their bosses. Now, clearly, as an employee today, you have much more freedom than those slaves did. Because even if their slavery was better 
than the ones we're thinking of, it still was slavery. And most of them, they couldn't just quit their job like you and I could. They didn't have that prerogative, that sort of freedom. And if Peter tells them to submit to their masters, how much more should we, whose bosses have less authority than their masters had over them, should we follow and apply this command? And Peter goes so far as to say that we should be submissive and with all respect, not just to those bosses who treat you fairly and who love you and are for you, even those bosses who are harsh and thoughtless and self-serving. Because even to them you should submit. And he specifically points out that being subject and serving an unjust boss, what does he say? It's a gracious, beautiful thing in the sight of God. God will look at you being respectful and serving a boss who does not deserve that level of treatment with a delight and pleasure. You've gotta know this, understand the New Testament. God is so proud of his people and loves his people when we serve people who treat us poorly. When we serve people who treat us poorly. Now right now, once again, you may be thinking of objections to this, you may be thinking of all the different ways obeying this command could make a dangerous situation. Right now your mind may be going to extreme situations where you're thinking, if you obey this command in the way that I think that you're saying, it once again could justify and encourage abuse. Now let me say really clearly, the Bible is not advocating that at all. And I can know that by looking at the text again, and you can see there's two different commands for you. So if you're thinking about your workplace, there's two different commands for how you relate to your boss. So there's, the first one is this, that in general, generally at work, you submit and are respectful to your boss, and then morally, you always do good no matter what. That in general, we submit, but morally, we do good, and in that way, we're like Jesus. So generally, generally in matters of work, you and I submit and respect our boss. Once again, 2.18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. With all respect. Here's the general rule of thumb. In matters of work, really practically, in matters of work at your workplace, like how the, the, op, the organization operates, how the business operates, we are to follow the lead of our boss. Now, can you suggest different ways of doing things? Absolutely. Can you raise questions? Absolutely. But how are we supposed to do that? We're supposed to do that with a tone and posture of respect. And that we can even push back and say, I think we should do things this way. I think our product would sell better this way. I think we just structure things this way. We do it in a kind, respectful way. And then if they decide not to listen to us, we trust and we follow. That's what the text is telling us to do. Now listen, this is in all matters of work that aren't issues of morality. It's a really important distinction. This is in all matters of your work that aren't issues of morality. See, there, at your workplace, there's gonna be more or less efficient ways of doing things. There's gonna be more or less effective ways of doing things, but a lot of the things you're dealing with at work are not dealing with necessarily biblical right and wrong. Usually it's more or less effective, more or less efficient, more or less wise, but not issues of necessarily explicit morality. So for instance, you can think that the way your boss structures your office or communicates change or handles meetings or sets expectations or all the different decisions they make that affect your work life are unhelpful. You can think they're bad at your, their job. You can think that. But you have to know, 
you have to know that the Bible doesn't say that a schedule of nine to five is morally superior than seven to three. You have to know, the Bible doesn't say that it's a sin to fill out reports every week. It may feel like a sin, it's not. The Bible doesn't say that certain personality types that maybe their tone is a little bit more aggressive or loud than you like is necessarily immoral. See, in the matters of work, here's what I would love for us to be known as as Christians in our workplace where we spend so much of our lives is that we're known as those who contribute to the overall efficiency and effectiveness and flourishing at our workplace. And we, what God is saying, one of the ways you can honor God is by submitting to and respecting those he has put over you at work. God is so sovereign even over your workplace. He's in control of all things, even where you work and who is your boss. And he says, we honor him even more so when we will be that respectful and submissive and subject to those bosses who do not treat us fairly. In the matters of work, that's what Peter is saying. So we submit in general and things of work, but then he says, but we do good morally. Look at verse 19, you can see this with me in 20. He says, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Then verse 20, he says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now this is a very interesting nuance Peter gives to these servants and to us. So in verse 18, and leave the last verse up for me. In verse 18, he said, be subject to your boss. That's what he said. But then in verse 20, what does he say in verse 20? He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, so what, what's happening? Because if you're being subject to your boss and doing everything they say, why would they ever cause suffering? He's saying there will be times when you will have to do good and it will go against what your boss wants and it will cause them to be unhappy and then you will suffer for it. That's what he's saying. But when you do good and suffer for it, when you do good at your workplace and it puts you at odds with your boss. What he's saying is there's a higher value than submitting to your boss. It's submitting to what God's word says is good and right. Even when doing that brings the wrath of your boss onto you. That's what Peter is saying. Now it's really important to note because Peter makes this distinction in verse 20. It's important to note that the, the wrath of your boss coming against you, that should happen over what is clearly good in God's word and not over what you personally prefer. It's a really important distinction. God is not honored when you use his name to promote your own personal agendas at work and then treat yourself as a martyr who's trying to be faithful to God when really you just want to push your own agenda. This is why Peter, what Peter's saying is, what credit is it to you if your boss chastises you for doing something silly or dumb? He's like, why would you get any credit for doing a bad job and getting in trouble? So there's nothing special about getting in trouble because you turned in a project late or you worked really poorly or you pushed back disrespectfully to prove a point. You may think you were being noble, but really what you're experiencing is the prerogative God has given your boss over you. That maybe you were just justifying being insubordinate and not being a good employee with the name of God. Now here's the point of the text. 
He's saying, if you're gonna get in trouble, if you're gonna receive a verbal tirade from your boss, if you're going to get a dock and pay, if you're even going to get fired, let it be over your faithfulness to God's word and doing good, not for doing a bad job. Not for doing a bad job. Let it be because you refuse to cheat and break laws the way your boss explicitly or implicitly suggests you should. Let it be overdoing good. Let it be because you're standing up for somebody who's being harassed or bullied, especially somebody who believes differently than you, who looks different than you, who if you stand up for them, you are worried about it's all of us care about being liked at our workplace more than we want to admit. It's like high school all over again. And you don't want to be associated with the uncool person. Let it be because you stand up for those who aren't standing up for themselves. Let it be over your conscientious objection to the demeaning of the image of God on every human being. Let it be over doing good for the Lord's sake. That's what Peter is saying. He's like, if you're going to suffer at your workplace, let it be because you are faithful to God. So here's a question I want you to ask yourself right now. Because all of us, whether you're a student or you're in the workforce or you stay at home with kids, whatever it may be, we have a lot of responsibilities we deal with week in and week out. Tomorrow morning it's coming for you. And I want you to ask the question, where do you need to grow in submission and where do you need to grow in doing good? Like right now, don't, don't be ethereal. Don't be hypothetical here. Think about your actual situation. Where do you need to, need to grow in being submissive to those who are over you? And where do you need to grow in doing good even when it costs? So what areas of your work right now, if you're being honest, maybe the Holy Spirit right now is challenging you on, you're actually not being submissive to your boss or you're being submissive but very disrespectful in the process. Maybe there's some of you who this week, you need to just go and apologize to your boss. You need to go, hey, I'm sorry about the way I handled that, or in public, the way I tried to push back that way, that wasn't right. And they may think, you're fine, and I don't care. But that's where we should be unique. We should sense wrongdoing in ways no one else does, because we have the word of God shaping our vision for us. And the other question for you is, where are you scared to do good at work, because you know it'll cost And honestly, maybe there's some of you who are scared because you know you've already done things that aren't good, and by owning up to they're not good, the cost may be you getting in trouble. Better to live with a clear conscience than to sully it and keep making money. What are things or people you know that you need to stand up for or or issues you need to raise? Maybe there's ethical concerns that you need to voice and you're scared to because what if I get in trouble? Peter says it's a gracious thing when you do good and suffer. It's a beautiful thing when you stand up for God's word over the word of any other person. Or maybe, and honestly, this is a lot of situations at work, you're just not sure, is it submission? Is it doing good? It's kind of a gray area. In those areas, don't just be quiet about it. Bring those things to the church. Bring those things to your pastor so we can help you think through what does faithfulness to God look like where you are? Because God cares a great deal about your work. He called you to your work. He wants to use you in your work. So we want to help you do that. See, we submit in general even to the unjust. 
And we do good even when it costs because when we do this, we follow in the path of Jesus. Look at verse 21 through 23. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus has set the path, and the path is one of submission and confidence in God and suffering injustice for doing good. Kind of contradicts that prosperity gospel we hear a lot. Submission, confidence in God and suffering injustice for doing good. How is Jesus able to do this? I mean, think about it. He is the maker of all things. He has all authority. If there's anyone who should be served by the world, it should be him. And you and I know what it feels like to have those who you know are under you in authority not treat you with respect. It makes us bristle. But how is Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, Bless those who revile him. How does he not threaten those who harm him? And how does he keep doing good even as it cost him everything? Well, one short answer is, well, because he's Jesus and he's better than us, true. But Peter in this text is not saying, he's not presenting Jesus as this person who's on a whole nother level you can never reach. He says, you're meant to follow his example. And he gives us there's the root of his power to endure suffering and justice for Jesus is in verse 23. Look at the last phrase of verse 23, if you bring it up there for me. The last phrase, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That last phrase, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As these things are happening, he's being reviled, he's suffering. He is actively entrusting himself, believing in God and saying, God will judge justly. God does not forget. He will be with me. He says he can trust himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was not a pushover. He wasn't unconcerned with injustice. And he wasn't secretly growing bitter at the people who were mistreating him. Why? Because he knew God loved him. He knew God was with him. And he knew, he's trusting, God will vindicate me at the proper time. I don't have to worry about that. His faith, his hope, his identity, his future was in God. And then God raised him from the dead. And he gave him the name that was above every name. And that told the universe, God judges justly. God judges justly. Jesus was vindicated. Jesus was rewarded for his perfect submission and trust in God and his submission to human authorities who murdered him. This is why he has the name above every name. Like, this is Philippians 2, 5, 9. Do not turn there, but listen to this text you've probably heard before if you've been in church. But think about it in this light. 
Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself in this phrase, by taking on the form of a servant. That word, doulos, can also be translated slave. Taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But he trusted him who judges justly, verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every single name. Jesus' life and death and resurrection sets you free to work like nobody else. It sets you free to work like nobody else. Because now you and I don't have to grasp and lunge and jockey at work for a sense of identity and purpose and future and to secure these things for ourselves. Why? We already have all those things in Jesus. I already have an identity that's way bigger than my job. I already have an eternal future secured for me. I don't have to fight and demean other people in the process. I can even lose for the sake of God and know that in the end I gain. You and I can serve and love and submit to difficult bosses because you and I know we were served in way more extravagant ways of Jesus. He served me in ways I was even more unworthy of than my boss is worthy of my service. It sets you free. When everyone else is restrained by their own egos, we can say, I don't need one of those. I already have an identity and a future in Christ. So I can serve. And then you and I can do good and suffer because Jesus shows us God will judge justly and he will vindicate you in a way no one else could. That you don't have to fight for your own reputation. You don't have to defend your name. Jesus is all the evidence you need. No, God will vindicate you. He will do it in his time and in his way, but it will happen. See, as you and I walk down the paths tread by Jesus in our workplace, what you're going to find and experience and see for yourself, this crazy reality that there's more joy in dying and submitting with Jesus than there is in being true to yourself. There could be no more fundamental contradiction of our culture right now. Jesus is saying, come down here with me and you'll find that dying and submitting with me is greater than being true to yourself. Because in his kingdom, the weak are strong. In his kingdom, the poor are rich. In his kingdom, the chief servant is the greatest. In his kingdom, submission leads to freedom. Because in this eternal, life-giving, forever kingdom of God, the way up is down. Let's pray together. Father, your kingdom and your word, God, so often it calls us in to counterintuitive realities. 
God. So often it's, it seems so foreign to what we think is real or think life is, and you say things like, submission leads to joy. That we don't have to fight for ourselves, God, you will vindicate us. You say things like, the meek inherit the earth. God, would you help us be a people who trust you and follow after you in our workplace? God, for everyone in this room, God, there are ways that we have probably separated our work from our relationship with you. Ways, God, where we haven't brought in what we genuinely believe on Sundays into the workplace we inhabit on Mondays. God, would this just be the beginning of us thinking about all of our lives under your reign? All of our lives under your word, all of our lives under your grace, and that we can know, even if we realize I've completely compartmentalized my life, I don't think about God at all at work. There's always hope with you. There's always forgiveness with you. You're always ready and willing to receive us back even when we've run away. God, thank you that you care about our work. Thank you that work was part of your creation. Thank you that our work is not meaningless, even if it feels that way to us sometimes. God, help this church be known as a people who contribute to the flourishing of people. Help us be known this week where we work as those who serve in ways that makes no sense. As those who get reviled and blessed. As those who stand up for what's good and trust you in the matters of work. God, make us an integrated people because Jesus, there's more joy with you than there is in being successful at work. God, I'm glad those aren't mutually opposed to one another, but God, I'm thankful that you bring joy nothing else can, that no paycheck could, no position could. I thank you for this upside-down kingdom where the way up is down. God, we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, church, let's stand, let's sing together.